joked earlier, one of the hardest things around Christmas Eve service is navigating this stage. Uh, and I appreciate everybody, let me not wreck anything. All right. I hope, uh, you know, we've talked in the past, years past, about being ready. I hope, I hope you're ready for Christmas. I hope you're, you're looking for it. You're shaking your head. He's not ready. Okay. <laughs> the first time I've ever seen a kid say he's not ready for Christmas. So, um... But, uh, but as we, we've said in years past, ready or not, here it is. And uh, there's a lot of, of traditions that we enjoy around this holy day in our families. We've talked about some of our, our traditions. We'll, we'll do one tonight. The kids you know, get to open a present on Christmas Eve. I know a lot of you have done that. That's a tradition that um, I was against in our family. Uh, I married into that tradition, and I fought it and lost. So we, uh, we do that. And, and you, you have others as, that I'm sure you do, and there's others we do. Uh, and then it's no different for, for worship. You know, we, we join with, with Christians of, of all denominations, shapes, and sizes as we celebrate this, this candlelight service, the, the singing of, of carols, the reading of scriptures. That's, that's a tradition that is shared across um, the world on the celebration of this night and certainly what we'll do in a few minutes which is the candlelight service the lighting of the candles is celebrating the light of Christ as we sing silent night I don't know with any definitive research whether that's the most common tradition among churches on this night but I would venture to guess that it is uh, most of the churches most of my friends that are pastors do something very similar to what we will do and it is it is that thought that really drove the, um, the series, the sermons I've been preaching, if you've been with us through this season of Advent, I always say that Christmas is a day, Advent is the season. We've been in the season of preparation for the celebration of the coming of Christ. And, and as we have worshipped together each Sunday that I've preached, we've talked about a song of Christmas, whether secular or sacred, that helped us frame our thoughts a little bit about understanding the power and the significance of what God did in the giving of, of His Son, Jesus. And all of that started because I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight. Before I wrote Advent 1 and Advent 2, the other Sundays of Advent, um, I had an idea what I wanted to do on Christmas Eve. Because I read something a few months ago that I did not know that got the whole process started. Which is this, that tonight is the 200th anniversary of the first singing of Silent Night. This is the 200th anniversary. It was in 1818 in St. Nicholas Church in Oberndorf, Austria, that Silent Night was first sung. The, the priest, the parish priest there of that little village was named Father Joseph um, Moore. And Father Joseph Moore had composed a poem a couple years previously when he was living in the hometown with his father. And before that Christmas Eve service, he went to the organist of the church. Now, the organist's name was Franz Gruber, um, which was interesting to me. You know, my brother's laughing. He knows because, well, because we're cut from the same cloth. Um, a lot of you have favorite Christmas movies. Uh, and if you guys are looking, my brother's down here. That's what I was pointing to. Um, but you have favorite Christmas movies. You guys are probably really... Um, Elevated, um, higher 
caliber than me. Your, your favorite Christmas movies are It's a Wonderful Life or some Hallmark movie or I don't know, whatever those classics are. I'm not as highbrow as some of you. My favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. Um, <laughs> it's a Christmas movie. So um, anyway, the whole reason we're laughing, just to let some of you in on the joke, that, that better be why you were laughing, or else I'm going to look bad. The villain in Die Hard, his name is Hans Gruber. And so that's the whole weird segue, I'm, I'm, the tangent I'm on. But the guy who wrote the music for Silent Night, to bring it back to things holy and wholesome, uh, is, Franz, is Franz Gruber. Franz Gruber was the, was the organist. And so what Father Moore did is he took this poem to him, and he said, I, I want you to put this to music so we can sing it for Christmas Eve, but I want it to a guitar. Um, it was written for a guitar, which was interesting because when they first sang it, they actually couldn't sing it during the Mass. They had to sing it afterward because the guitar was not a, an approved instrument for the Catholic Mass in 1818. But he put this in, in one, in a couple hours, he put this poem to music. And in 1818, how rude. Um, in 18, we know it's a little warm in here, so we're letting some air in if you're wondering why the doors are open. Uh, in 1818, after the Mass... For the first time, the chorus of Silent Night was sung. Father Moore played the guitar and sang the tenor part, and, and uh, Franz Gruber sang the, the bass, and they led the congregation in the singing of, of Still, Still Nacht, Still Nacht, which is the, the, the German, uh, the way it was written. Later in the year, uh, a fellow by the name of Karl Marascher came to tune the organ at the church, which might be why they didn't sing it by organ that first time. There's a lot of legend that the organ had, the, the area had flooded, which was common, and the organ had been damaged or had been damaged by rodents, which is why they had to create music for a guitar. Whatever the reason, he came and he tuned the organ, and he, became, he came across the music and the song, and he loved it. And so he got a copy of the composition, and he shared that with some folk singing groups that he knew, I think the Rainers, and there was an, uh, the other name escapes me. And they started to sing Silent Night in their concerts. And it started to become popular. Within a few years, it was being sung before um, Franz I, the emperor of Austria, before Alexander I, who was the emperor of Russia, or the um, dictator, uh, uh, czar of Russia. Got to remember my history. And, um, and in, in 1839, so about 20 years after it was written, it came to the United States. The tune was changed a little bit but it's largely the version that we sing, and that is so treasured across uh, Christian tradition. And so I started to, you know, I kind of had some fun learning the history. I didn't know all of that prior to, to hearing this, and I, I read the story, and I started to think again about the words that we sing, the very familiar, the very common words for, for many of us. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And I started to think about Christmas, and I started to think about those particular words, all is calm. <laughs> and, well, I'm curious, how many of you find Christmas time to be calm and serene? <laughs> yeah, me neither. I, I started to think about that. Christmas is not calm. Not, not just this night. This night is wonderful, but, but especially um, if you see us buzzing around here before worship, it's not calm. We're scrambling. Uh, if you were here, if you came in at the back end of the last service, there was nothing calm about that. We had chairs everywhere. 
Um, it's, it's, you know, it's crazy in a lot of ways. And, and I started to think about that as kind of the reality of, of life for, for a lot of us, the busyness, the, the craziness, sometimes the unsettledness of this holy season. And I started to think about that, that disconnect between the story that we celebrate as being calm and serene and the reality that most of us experience as we're celebrating it. How is it that something was that we, we picture as so calm and serene and peaceful has become so chaotic and busy and sometimes stressful for us? And then I started to think maybe it's not our reaction to the story. Maybe it's our misunderstanding of it. Maybe that first Christmas, that first celebration of the birth of Christ, the, the actual birth of Christ, maybe, maybe it really wasn't as calm and serene and peaceful as we often imagine it to be. And think about the pieces of the story. We've talked about this in these past weeks, but think about the players involved. I mean, the, the central figures of Mary and Joseph. You know, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Mary being blessed, and being blessed meant she was a young, unwed mother. I mean, that, that's what the blessing looked like for her, and, and how that must have thrown her life into just an upheaval as she tried to make sense of what God was doing. And, and it was a blessing, don't misunderstand me, but, but she had to begin to process that. And that had to create incredible turmoil in her life. And Joseph, who gets this story from his fiancée, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's of the Holy Spirit. And we know he didn't believe it. None of us would. Because Matthew says that he had made the decision to divorce her quietly, to end the engagement because of this news. And it's only after the angel appears to Joseph and reassures him, no, she's not, she's not being unfaithful. This is God's plan. So both of them have had their lives turned upside down. And, and even as we get to the birth story, they still have to be processing that. They were incredibly faithful, but they still had to be trying to understand what this means. It had to be incredibly unsettling for them. And then you think about the external story, the, the factors that are at play, the fact that, that Mary and Joseph in the ninth month of her pregnancy have to travel to Bethlehem so Joseph can be registered, which means they want to get a head count. The Romans want to get a head count so they can tax everybody. You know, it's not a happy trip. And they've got to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about 80 to 100 miles, depending on the route. Um, they didn't have trains and cars. And, I mean, they, they were on foot. Nine months pregnant, Mary probably walked 80 to 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Ladies, anybody volunteer for that when you're nine, mo nine months pregnant? Uh, we often picture her on the donkey, and maybe, we don't know that, but let's assume she was on the donkey. That would have been about a 10 to 12 day trip. Nine months pregnant. It doesn't sound a whole lot better. And so they have to deal with this, and they get there, and you know the pieces of the story. We read them in the Gospels. There's, there's no room for them, so they end up in a stable filled with animals and the smells and the sounds that that would have brought to a child-birthing suite. Um, and the, the um, showing up of the shepherds, the, the treasured but maybe uninvited guests, or they're invited by God, but Mary may not have known they were coming. And, uh, you know, all these elements of the story that, that speak to this kind of unsettled reality of, of, the, of the narrative. And then you add, if you want to layer on top of that, it's the fact that this is a, a people that are in turmoil, culturally speaking. They're, they're, they're Jews that are being um, oppressed by a Roman authority. The Romans are in power. 
and they're resisting that, and they don't know how to take this foreign, op, um, foreign oppression, this foreign um, occupation that they're experiencing, and there's tension between do we just accommodate and go along? There are groups that want to resist peacefully, but resist. There are other groups that want to resist violently, and, and they're at odds with each other. So everything's in turmoil. That's the, the whole point. On every level of the story is turmoil. Everywhere you look, and it's all happening simultaneously. If you look over here, you see turmoil. You look over here, you see turmoil. You look over there, you see turmoil. It reminds me, I, I, I shared earlier that this past um, Thursday, Tony and I had been given tickets uh, for, well, Tony was given tickets for her birthday, and she was kind enough to take me along with her. Um, for those of you that are guests, Tony's my wife, sorry. Um, but uh, we went to see uh, Cirque du Soleil at Amelia Arena, the, the show Crystal, their ice show. And if you've seen a Cirque du Soleil or a Blue Man group, there's other shows like this, you know that you can't just focus on one area. Because the day, you know, a lot of shows where there's like one thing happening and you just watch that one thing, the next thing happens, it's sequential. These shows aren't like that. There's things happening all over the place. So if you turn here, you're missing something over there. It drives me crazy. You've got to have your head on a swivel. Because something's happening all over the place. Well, I, I thought about that, and I started to think about the, the birth stories of Jesus. Something's happening at every level. And, and it is all unsettling. And I honestly think that's part of the good news of the story. I think that's part of the gift of the story, that it is so incredibly messy. I was, I was with some, some colleagues uh, a few weeks ago. A clergy group, and we were talking, and one of, the, one, of the, um, one of my friends asked us, he said, what, what do you all treasure most about the, uh, the story of the birth of Jesus? What speaks to you? And so people were sharing, and when it got to me, I had thought about it, and I said, you know what I love about the story? I love the chaos. I love the chaos of the story, and here's why. Because I know that my life is chaos. I, I know that my life is most often more chaos than it is settled and steady. That, that every day and every week it seems like I'm dealing with stuff I didn't plan for. I'm having to, to, to meet, meet demands I didn't expect, uh, whether they be with time or resources or... or um, you know, just, just some sort of focus or need. It just, it never feels like if I sat down on a Monday morning and predicted how my week's going to go, it never seems to go that way. And, and it feels like it's, it feels chaotic so often for me. And, and I think the, the power there is it's probably not any different for you. I, I'm not sharing that with you because somehow I think that, that my life is more crazy than your lives are. Uh, you know, you ever have, you ever, do you have a friend, and please don't name them, who, um, Who's a one-upper? Yeah, you know what a one-upper is? You know, the person is, if you've got a, if you, something's tough in your life, it's tougher for them. If you've had something good happen, they've had something better happen. If, you know, those kind of people. Whatever your story is, they've got something bigger and better. That's a one-upper. I'm not trying to be a one-upper. I don't think my life is any more chaotic or crazy than yours. And I know this because a lot of you share your stories too. And, and the power of, of the, the, the birth of Jesus, the power of the coming of Christ is that that's where Jesus shows up. That's where God shows up in the chaos, in the, in the messiness, in, in the, the unsettledness of our lives. Because if, if God had waited for everything to be perfect, 
You know, for Mary to be married and settled, for there to be a, a wonderful birthing suite somewhere in Bethlehem for them, for attendants to be there and, and resources and everything to be perfect. We couldn't identify with that because most of our lives don't go that way. But the fact that, that God shows up in the messiness and the discomfort and the, the disruption of life, that, that means something because we, we understand that. We, we can identify with that. And the power is that's where God always shows up. God, the, the story from the scriptures from the very beginning is God showing up in the chaos. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. And it tells us that the spirit of God moved over the waters. Well, in the ancient world, waters was a representation of destruction or death or chaos. The Spirit of God moved over the chaos. And the first thing he did was he said, let there be light. He begins to bring order into the chaos. Let there be light. And he begins to, to change things and to bring some semblance of, of meaning and value out of what was chaotic and disconnected. And throughout the scriptures, that's what God does when he, when he steps into the lives of men and women. He brings meaning and value even in the craziness of their lives. It's not a guarantee that their lives get smoother. We've talked about this. Go through the, the men and women of faith in the scriptures. God's presence doesn't make their lives easier. But it brings value and meaning into their lives. That's what God does. And then we get to John 1. And, and it really connects to Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it was the light. Of, he was the light of life, the light of humankind came into a world of darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. It's very similar to the light that God speaks into existence in John 1. God steps into our chaos, into our mess, into our craziness. And, and, and that means something, because I think all of us here tonight, we have different stories, different experiences, different realities, different ways our lives sometimes are chaotic. But if you don't know what that feels like, well, I don't mean to be pessimistic but give it time <laughs> give it time you will I'll, I'll, I'll cut a pass for the three four five six seven year olds but the rest of us probably know that and the good news is that's where God shows up that's where Jesus meets us and that that is is powerful for us so we sing a song like silent night all holy night all is calm all is bright I, I don't think the implication there is that all the the craziness goes away. But that when we begin to focus on Christ, when we begin to focus in, God speaks a calm and a peace into our lives that supersedes the, the realities around us. Paul says it. Chapter, or Philippians 4, chapter, or verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. When he says that in his experience, that, that set your mind on Christ because he gives us the peace that passes all understanding. That's Philippians 4, 7. The peace that passes all understanding. The peace that doesn't make sense. The kind of peace you have when everything's going crazy, and yet God is working internally to bring order out of, out of our chaos. That's, that's what God does when we begin to focus in on that. We begin to, to know what should matter most. There's a, a movie a few years ago, Kevin Costner movie, that, um, that came out. It was, it was one of his baseball movies. If you know Kevin Costner movies, he's done a number of baseball movies. And most people, when they think about his baseball movies, they think about um, um, Field of Dreams, 
or they think about Bull Durham. But he did another one that came after, and it was called For the Love of the Game. And uh, he plays a, a pitcher in his last start of a 19-year career. Billy Cannon is the character's name. And he's pitching for the Detroit Tigers. He's pitching against the Yankees. And he's in Yankee Stadium. And they show the chaos of a, of a live sporting event. The crowd and the people in the crowd that are heckling him and taunting him. And, and the noises and the sounds and, and just everything that would seem to be such an incredible distraction for a professional athlete or for any person. And into that scene, they focus in on, on Costner, this, this pitcher, as he, as he gets ready to throw that first pitch. And as he leans down and he focuses in on the catcher who's given the signal, he speaks these words to himself. Clear the mechanism. And as he speaks that, all of a sudden, everything around him, the noise of the crowd, the noise of, the, of a train passing by, quiets. It blurs, and the only thing he's focused on, the only thing he sees is the catcher, is, is the, the responsibility he, as he has. The only thing he sees is what's most important in that moment. It's not that all those things don't exist anymore, but he's zoned out because he's focused in on what matters most. When we come to this moment of, of lighting candles, we come to this moment of singing Silent Night, and we talk about silent and holy and calm, it's not because all of those other things cease to be real in our lives, but what's most important is when we allow ourselves to focus on Christ, the light of Christ, the flame that we hold, and what that represents, we allow God's peace to speak into our lives, to speak his truth, and to speak his peace. That's, that's what I pray for all of us tonight. As we sing this together, as we celebrate this wonderful tradition, whatever it is that's unsettling in your life, allow, allow the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. Paul writes that when he's in prison. He writes it to a church when he's in prison and he's going to die in Rome, and he talks optimistically and joyfully and thankfully about the presence of God. Because what was inside and Christ's presence was more powerful than the external that he was facing. That's true for us. I pray that, that if I could steal that line for a few moments tonight, you can clear the mechanism and focus in on what matters most. That this truly can be a silent, holy, calm, blessed night. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you speak your truth into our lives. You come into our chaos. You meet us in our greatest places of need, and you speak a peace that passes all understanding. Help us each to know that peace and to share that love. We pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.